A couple of weeks ago, my oldest son joined a track team for kids with special needs. And if you know my story at all, if we're friends or if you've heard me teach for any length of time, you can imagine that was a special day for me. And it was special for two reasons. Uh, One is my son has cerebral palsy, among some other disabilities. And when he was two years old, a neurologist told us that he likely would never walk. And so the very fact that my now seven-year-old, who took his first steps when he was five, uh, is able to be on a running team, that's a big, that's a big deal. I mean, my, he has overcome so much. And so that was an exciting day that he's on a track team. I mean, who would have thought that five years ago? And um, the second reason why, if you know me, you, that would be a special day for me is what, running is one of the great passions of my life. Um, I ran track and cross country in high school. I went to college on a scholarship to run track and cross country. I mean, I love like I know you guys check Mets scores every morning or the you know Knicks or whatever. They get the third pick. Bad week for Knicks fans. No Zion. Uh, I know you wake up and you check like New York sports score. I check a website called Let's Run dot com and I find out what's happening in the world of track and field. I love running. It's like one of the great passions of my life. And so not only was it a special day because my son, you know, it has these disabilities and now he's on a running team, but it's a special day because that, there's just something special about me sharing that with my son. Uh, and that was a dream that I thought, I mean, every dad does it. You know, you have a kid and you dream of them kind of, you, you dream of reliving your glory through them. And that was a dream that I thought had died when my son was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And so that was a special day. I was emotional. So I was emotional as we're going to track practice for the first time. But nevertheless, that's not the story. The story is this. The, his first practice began a couple of Fridays ago at 4 p.m. in Williamsburg. Um, but uh, but he, gets out, he gets home from school at like 2.30 or close to 3 o'clock. So you know, Bay Ridge to Williamsburg, that's the other side of Brooklyn. Trains aren't going to get you there that, that quick. And so you're thinking, I, we're, we've got to drive. And so I'm ready for my son. He gets off the bus and it's like, hey, man, get in the van because I drive a minivan. Not ashamed of it. We got in the minivan and we started driving. And the GPS says, you will arrive at 355. I'm thinking, great. I've got five minutes to spare. I've got five minutes to find parking. And then we hit the BQE and we are stopped. And the GPS is like, you will arrive at 357. You will arrive at 359. And then it says, you'll arrive at 4 p.m. I'm thinking, oh, great, we're going to be late. And then it says 4.05, 4.20. I'm going, oh, no. And I start, you, you know, when you, that happens, you get really stressed out. And traffic, just, it, it really stresses me out. And then, it, like, the, the Google map says, don't go on the BQE, try the Manhattan Bridge instead. So I'm going into Manhattan, and then I'm going over the Williamsburg Bridge. We end up getting there. I find parking, thank God, and we get there at 4.15. So we're 15 minutes late. This is his first practice. I'm super stressed out because of the traffic. I'm, I hate being late to things, so I'm stressed out about that. And then on top of that, I'm emotional because this is my son's first day of track practice. And we get to, it's at McCarran Park, the, at the gymnasium at McCarran Park. We get to the gymnasium. I go to the counter. I'm going, my son's here for the special needs track team. Can we go? And the guy at the counter says, is he a member? 
And I was like, man, I never heard anything about membership for this thing. Like nobody told me about this. He's like, no, he's got to be a member of this gymnasium of the, you know, the parks department. I said, well, he's not a member. And I said, we're not members. He said, well, you got to fill out this form. And it's like three pages long. And it's like all the information you, they would ever need. And I said, well, can he go through and I'll fill out the information? He said, no, he can't go through until it's all filled out. And I was like, this is going to take me another 15 minutes. And I just started arguing with the guy and I, I can be nice about it and we can laugh about it, but I was extremely rude. I mean, I was, just, I was angry. I was frustrated with the guy and I took out all my frustration on him. And then he gave me the form. I said, fine, I'm, I'll do it. You know, and I take the form from him and I'm signing it real violently. It's like, Ill, it's I mean, not even legible, like what I'm writing. I'm angry or whatever. And then I sign it violently and I hand it to him. And, uh, and then I argue with him a little bit more, say some words to him. And he says, all right, fine, you can go back. And so I take my son back. Now we're about a half hour late. He starts his track practice. I sit down on the bench and I catch my breath and I'm just overwhelmed with guilt. I'm going, what have I done? I embarrassed myself. I embarrassed my son. And that guy was just doing his job. Like that form is for my son's safety. That guy was just doing his job. And the guilt that overcame, I was like, man, I cannot believe I cannot believe I acted that way, embarrassed my son, embarrassed myself. And I was just sitting there just overwhelmed with guilt. And after a few minutes, I couldn't take it anymore. And so I walked back into the lobby. I find the guy and I said, sir, I said, I am so sorry. I said, I acted like a jerk. And he stopped me as I was apologizing. He said, hey, 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 man, we're cool. And then he gave me a hug. Like, not like a, like, it was like one of the, you know, and then bring it in. It was like a man hug. And he said, it's cool. Don't worry about it. He said, man, I've been there before. And I, do you know how good that felt? Like the emotions that overcame me to know that this guy had forgiven me when I had been just a royal jerk to him, it, it brought me to tears. Now I couldn't let him see that because we're embracing and I was like, it'd be a little too intimate. But man, as I was walking back into the gymnasium, I just had tears like kind of in my eyes because it, there's just something about being forgiven in that way when you have wronged someone that feels so good. And I don't know about you, maybe you've never been rude with someone in that exact situation, but you all know what it feels like. You all do. You know what it feels like to be overcome with guilt when you've hurt or when you've offended someone. Guilt is a universal experience. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all feel that at times in our lives. And for many of us, it goes much deeper and much further than just a one-time moment where we do something wrong or we offend someone. In our American culture that that values success and hard work and achievement, many of us, we have a sense of guilt for not having done enough in this world. And we have a sense of guilt that we haven't justified our existence, perhaps. Perhaps you carry a nagging sense of unworthiness. You can't quite put a finger on why or what it is, but you feel like an imposter. Or perhaps you feel like you don't, you don't live up to what's expected to you, maybe of your parents or maybe of your employer or whatever. And maybe you can relate to this, this verse in Romans 7 where the Apostle Paul says, I don't understand what I do for the things I want to do. I don't do them. And the things I hate to do, I do those things. Can you relate to that? You're like, I know what I'm supposed to do and I know what I want to do. 
but I don't do it all the time. And I know there's all these things that I hate to do, but yet I do them. See, I found that everyone relates to that verse. Everyone relates on a personal level because we all know the feeling of guilt or unworthiness or the word that the Bible uses. We feel condemnation. But what do we do with our guilt? What do we do? How do we overcome our guilt? How do we overcome feelings of inadequacy or unworthiness? And I told you just how good it felt when that man in, at McCarran Park embraced me and forgave me. It was an incredible feeling to, that he absolved my guilt. And the very person whom I sinned against absolved my guilt and no longer held it against me. But the question is, how can we all experience that on a larger scale? How can we experience that? How can we know that we've been absolved from all of our guilt, all of our unworthiness, all of our feelings of inadequacy? See, the first thing I want you to see from our text today is that we're all seeking righteousness. Okay, look in verse 19. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, I'm about to use some Bible words. Okay. Like theology words. In our passage today, which was written by a guy named the, by Paul the Apostle, he uses words. He, first, he talks about the law. We'll get to that in a moment. But he also uses words righteous or righteousness and justification. Now, this is a major, these words are a major theme of the book of Romans. Um, how can we be righteous? How can we be made righteous? How can we be justified? This is the question that Paul, the apostle, is seeking to answer when he writes the book of Romans. And these words actually mean the same thing. Uh, they come from the same word, dikaiosune. You don't have to remember that. But it, it, the same word in the Greek is righteousness and justification. So righteous or righteousness, that's the noun. You have righteousness. Justified is the verb, which means to be made righteous. And they each refer to a type of performance record. Now, before I lose you, here's how we might, here's how we understand this as modern Americans or modern New Yorkers. And I heard Tim Keller describe it like this. When you apply for a job, what you're generally trying to do is you're trying to convince employers that you are worthy of working for that company. So what do, you, what do you show them? What do you give to them to prove that you're worthy of working for that company? You give them a resume. You, perhaps a resume, maybe an academic transcript if you're applying for grad school. Or maybe you just show them your LinkedIn profile, which I've stopped using LinkedIn. They send me way too many emails. So don't even try to add me. I won't check it. But a resume, academic transcript, LinkedIn, all of these are official records. This is what they are. They are official records of your performance. Performance. They are your righteousness, so to speak. They justify to, the, to the, your potential employer why you think you are qualified for a particular position. They are your righteousness and they justify you, you to they, 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 may, they make you justified in applying for that position. They are documents that prove your worth and they justify that you belong in that company. So when Paul talks about righteousness, he's talking about on a larger scale, your righteousness is the thing that you show to yourself, you show to others, and you show to God to say, here is why my life counts. This is what justifies my existence. This is what justifies my acceptance. 
And in American culture, this is how it is in virtually every area of life. You have to have some sort of validation, some sort of righteousness to get a job. You have to have some sort of validation or righteousness to get into the school that you want. You have to have some valid. I mean, there are exclusive clubs and restaurants and parties that you have to meet certain criteria to gain access into those places. And because every area of our life we're judged based on merit, we easily then apply that to our approach to the way we to the way we approach God. We believe this is our default position. We believe that if there is a God, then we then we have to prove our worth to him in some way, but not with an academic record or a resume, but with a moral record. And virtually every every religion, to my knowledge, espouses this idea. If you want to get into heaven, if you want to find enlightenment or nirvana or whatever it is that you're seeking, this is what you must do. Eightfold path the pillars of Islam, the Ten Commandments or whatever. We all have sort of things that we have to uh, follow if we want to experience the peace that is offered to us. And if you do well enough, if the good outweighs the bad, then you get in or you experience peace or whatever. This idea is seen in the first Avengers movie. It's the last week of Avengers quotes, I promise. When the character Natasha Romanoff Black Widow, when she's introduced in the first Avengers movie, uh, she, we find out in her little storyline as they're sort of introducing who she is, we find out that she has a very sordid past, that she's got some things. I never quite say exactly what it is, but we find out that she's got some, some pretty bad things in her past. She used to be a bad guy, but now she's a good guy. She's on the good team. She's on the Avengers. And she says to Hawkeye, she says, I've got a lot of red in my ledger. And I just need to wipe it out. And her whole story arc throughout all 20 plus films is her trying to wipe her ledger clean and take the red out of her ledger. And it's a re- so she can attain peace so that she can find a God or whatever it is that she's seeking. And that's a powerful narrative. If you've seen Endgame, I won't spoil it, but her story reaches this amazing culmination where this is at the very center of it. And it's a powerful narrative because we all feel it. This all sense of like, I've got some red in my ledger and I just, I've got to wipe it clean. And some people might say, well, you know, I'm not religious. I don't feel the need to balance some cosmic moral scale. But the truth is that regardless of religious belief, every single person feels compelled to justify their existence. You just do to prove your worth. This is why so many people in our city will wreck their marriages destroy their children and even maybe their own health to work 80 hour weeks because because they are convinced that their performance at their job, their accomplishments will make them worthy of some approval, that their work is their righteousness. And so they will kill the very things that mean the most to them in their life so that they can pursue this thing that they think will give them the righteousness that they crave. Uh, My favorite movie of all time is Chariots of Fire. I've got the movie poster Right above my desk. I mean, it's, I look at that, them running across the beach right next to pictures of my children. I mean, it's, I love that movie. And it's a story about two Olympic sprinters. One of them is named Harold Abrams. And he is obsessed with winning because he feels compelled like he has to. And he's a hundred meter runner. 
And he says, he's talking about the 100 meter, 100 meter dash. He says, I raised my eyes and I looked down that corridor, meaning the lane of the track. He said, it's four feet wide. And I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Isn't that kind of sad when you think of it? He said, my worth, I, I will justify my existence if I can make it down that straightaway on that track faster than everybody else in the world. Ronda Rousey, you remember her? I think she's like, she does like WCW now or whatever it's called. But for a, a moment in time, she was the most dominant uh, ultimate fighter in a female division uh, in all of UFC. And there was one event, this was a few years ago, she was in like the premier pay-per-view event and she fought Holly Holm. And I don't know if you remember this, but Holly Holm broke Ronda Rousey's undefeated streak. I mean, it was like unbelievable that Ronda Rousey could be defeated. It was this huge deal. And months later, I mean, Ronda Rousey was completely devastated by this loss. She didn't see it coming. Nobody did. And months, months later, after she had sort of kind of come to grips with it and reflected on it, she was on the Ellen show. And this is what she said. After that fight, I was in the medical room and I was down in the corner and I was sitting in the corner and I was like, listen to this. What am I anymore if I'm not this? I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I thought, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one gives a blank about me anymore without this. She had made her win-loss record her righteousness. And once it was blemished, she had nothing to live for. It justified her existence in this world to be the championship belt holder. And she said, what am I anymore if I'm not this? So here's the point I'm trying to make. And I'm belaboring the point on purpose. Every one of us feels a sense of condemnation like we don't measure up. You can tell me you don't. You can fight it. But you do. You just do. It's why you do the things you do in your life. Some of us call it guilt. Some of us call it unworthiness. Some of you don't even know what to call it, but you feel it. And you feel like your performance record or your righteousness is lacking. But what do we do? How do we get our righteousness to be enough to satisfy us and to no longer feel the condemnation we feel? And we find all these things in our lives that we think might help justify our existence. And if you're religious particularly if you're a Christian or Jewish, you use the law, the Bible, the Ten Commandments. You think, if I can be a good Christian, if I can obey what's in the Bible, then I can get rid of that sense of condemnation. But look at the Ten Commandments. This is like basic Judeo-Christian ethics, the most basic it gets. You look at the Ten Commandments, you're like, if I can follow those, then I will be righteous. Have you ever envied something that your friend has, like ever? Well, you're guilty of the 10th commandment. Have you ever gossiped or lied about a friend? You're guilty of the 9th commandment. Have you ever disrespected your parents? You're guilty of the 5th commandment. And you're like, well, I haven't done the bad ones. Haven't murdered anyone. But Jesus himself said, 
If you have anger in your heart that is unjust toward another person and you want them to disappear from your life, you've already committed murder in your heart and in your mind. You've never committed adultery. That's awesome. But Jesus says if you've even had a lustful thought in your mind, then you've already done the act in your heart. So you're guilty of breaking not just those, but the other commandments. I mean, the most basic of ethics in the Bible. There's a lot more. It's like 600 more commands in the Bible. And you can't even get the the basic 10 ones. Paul says in Romans that we, the purpose, one of the things that the law does is it shows us that we cannot be justified by works of the law because none of us can be obedient to the commands in scripture fully. Even the most basic commands of Judeo-Christian ethics we cannot keep. So the law cannot justify you. And you think, well, if I could just be a good Christian, have a quiet time every day with my Bible, if I can pray, if I can be in a small group and go every week. You cannot justify yourself by adding more law into your life. You can't. And again, if you're not religious, you still you you may not care about what the Ten Commandments say or you may not care about what the Sermon on the Mount says, but you still have your own laws that you live by and you expect and you expect other people to live by those laws. There's an old story that I've heard preachers use. They say that there's a man standing before God on Judgment Day and the man tells God, hey, I never believed in Christianity. And God says, "Okay, that's fine. I won't judge you by the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount then. Like, what are you going to judge me by? He says, I'll just use your own law. I'll use your own standards. I have a record of every time you told other people how they should live. And I'm just going to judge you according to your own laws. How do you think you're going to (laughs) do? You see, we're all guilty of hypocrisy, even by our own standards. So whether you're religious or irreligious, if you try to use any form of law, any standard... You cannot be justified by it because you will fail it every time. And many people ask, well, what's the point of the law then? Look what Paul says in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, this is one of the purposes of the law. There's many great David said the law is a beautiful thing. He meditated on it day and night. He rejoiced. I'm not saying the law is a bad thing. But one of the purposes of the law is that it exposes us to the knowledge of our own sin. The law reveals your inability to merit any acceptance before God. The law then exposes your guilt. That's what Ten Commandments does. The Ten Commandments is like a mirror, Martin Luther said, that when you look at it, it exposes the depravity of your own heart. And the law, to our utterly sinful hearts, it's impossible. Some of you, when you got out of college, you applied for jobs. And you know how impossible it felt when you saw the job descriptions. Because it's categorized as an entry-level job. But it said you need two years experience to get the job. And you're like, I need two years experience to get an entry-level job. But I can't get an entry-level job without two years experience. It's impossible. You're like, what do you want from me? Sometimes looking at the commands of the scriptures can feel like that. The law of God can feel like that. It reveals this standard by which God judges us by, but yet it's impossible to our hearts. God requires to enter into his kingdom, to be accepted by him. He requires perfect righteousness. But yet the Bible says clearly there is no one righteous, no, not one. And so you read that. You're like, well, what do you want from me, God? 
If I need to be righteous to be approved to enter the kingdom of heaven, but I can't do it, what am I supposed to do? Look at what it said. This is the second thing I want you to see today. The message of Christianity is not that we earn righteousness or that we seek to earn it. It's that we receive righteousness. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith is, in Jesus, is, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. How? By works of the law? No. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation, that's another Bible theology word, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot to unpack here, and I won't be able to say it all, but let me just give you a summary of what Paul is saying in these five verses. He's saying, first, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have lived up to God's standard of holiness, which is himself. And we all, to quote Black Widow, have read in our ledger, and no matter how hard we try, we can't wipe our slate clean. But God has sent his son, Jesus, who is fully righteous, fully obeyed the law. Whatever moral standard you see in the Bible and whatever moral standard you want to measure anyone by, Jesus clears it. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. He was fully righteous. He has come, perfectly fulfilled the law that we cannot obey, yet he takes on the punishment that we deserve. And you're like, what is actually happening on the cross? It says that Jesus became our sin and our sin was condemned in him. What that means is that Jesus became your sin. You at your very worst moments, Jesus became that. Which means on the cross, Jesus became the angry husband who neglects and abuses his family. On the cross, Jesus became the drug addict. On the cross, Jesus became the teenage girl lying to her parents. On the cross, Jesus became the religious hypocrite living a double life. On the cross, Jesus became the selfish, the gossip, the lazy, the proud, the arrogant, the racist, the bitter, the cynical, the rude, the adulterous. Isaiah 53, 6 says that on the cross, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. God became you and me at our worst moments. God became me at that moment when I was arguing like a jerk with the dude at the counter at McCarran Park. He became those things and then God condemned those things in him. And Jesus died and took the full wrath of God for what you and I, for your guilt and my guilt, all of it, so that we could be fully innocent and so that our righteousness could be restored and so that we could be justified. I want you to let these words hit you. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Here's what Paul says. Through faith in Jesus, we are given Jesus' righteousness. We are fully justified. You know that mean? That doesn't just mean you're forgiven. It doesn't mean that your slate is wiped clean. That would be awesome if that's what happened. But it's actually even more. It's not that your slate has been wiped clean. It's that you have been given Jesus' slate. You have been given his righteous, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we could become the righteousness of God. We could be given Christ's righteousness. We aren't just forgiven of, what, of our guilt. We aren't just, our guilt is not just removed. It's as if we never even committed those sins in the first place. Not only does God take away your guilt, but he puts perfect righteousness in your place. It's as if you lived Christ's life because Jesus took yours. That means all your striving can stop. You no longer have to live under the guilt of your failures. You no longer have to justify your existence through a resume or through improvement, through uh, achievements or through how many followers you have or how many likes you get on your post. You are accepted fully by God through faith in Jesus, period, full stop. Later in Romans 8, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Listen to this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I began this sermon by telling you about my experience at McCarran Park, where I'd grossly sinned against a good man. And I was sitting in that room. My sin, my failure was eating me up and I was condemning myself rightfully so because I deserved it. And when I could no longer live with my guilt anymore, I swallowed my pride. I got up out of my seat. I went into the lobby and I confessed my sin to the man whom I sinned against. And I asked for his forgiveness. And he said to me, don't worry about it. Man, we're cool, he said. And then he embraced me. The joy of forgiveness that swept over me in that moment. The joy of being free from that condemnation. That guilt that was eating me up. He just took it away. He took it away. And not only that, he restored me. In, I didn't know the guy. All he knows of me is that I'm a jerk. And he embraces me. And then we start talking about the weather. He restored me into a relationship with him and we become, became friends. And now when I take my son to practice every week, I'm able to shake the guy's hand. All of that was undeserved. I didn't deserve any of that. How much more so, church, should we find joy in the forgiveness of Jesus?
See, perhaps you're here this morning and your failure is eating you up and you feel condemned. Maybe you've made amends with all the people in your life, but when you sit down to pray or when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you just can't, you feel so unworthy before a holy God. Perhaps you're chasing a feeling of acceptance or approval, but it still feels that no matter how much you accomplish or no matter how hard you try, it's not enough. You need to hear these words spoken over you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you feel condemned? Do you feel guilty? Or do you feel unworthy? Or do you feel not enough? Go to Jesus. Confess your sin to him. Confess your fears to him. Confess your failures to him. Confess your inadequacies to him. Just as I had to go confess those things to a man at a counter in a gymnasium. You confess those things to Jesus. And when you do that, two things will happen. The scriptures promise, at least two things will happen. The scriptures promise us first, Psalm 103, 11, 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Listen to this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's God's equivalent of, don't worry about it, man. We're cool. Don't mention it. I won't hold it against you because I've forgotten it. Because I don't see anything you've done. All I see in you is Christ's righteousness. And the second thing that happens, second John 1, or just John 1, 12. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Just as that man in that lobby embraced me and restored me into a friendship, not only does God forgive you, but he welcomes you. He embraces you. You no longer have to live in fear. You no longer have to be consumed by guilt. You no longer have to feel like you have to appease God. You can now live to please him because you know he's already pleased with you. Because you have been restored, because he loves you, because he embraces you, and he calls you his child and he calls you his friend, you now have life. And now you can pursue righteousness knowing that you've already attained it through Christ. You don't seek righteousness. You don't use the law to earn your righteousness before God. You use the law as a way to pursue righteousness because you know that the law has already been fulfilled for you. That's the message of the gospel. What the law could not do and what we could not do through the law, God did. Let's pray.